are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to a new episode of the Greek Myth Files. This is the third episode of Season 4, which takes a close look at Greek mythical monsters and their role in the landscape and the Greek heroic story world. In this installment, we have a special treat. This episode was written by a former student at the University of New Hampshire, Jake Compagna, who is now teaching Latin at Dover High School. He's something of a myth expert, and we're glad to have his work here on the show. Jake completed an undergraduate thesis on giants and larger-than-life creatures, so he reprised his work on one group of primeval monsters, those called the giants, who threatened even the Olympian gods as they were establishing their rule of law and order. Today, we'll break down how the stories, depictions, and possible physical traces of these creatures reflect the fear and wonder felt by the Greeks of antiquity about what existed in what we might call primeval time. At the end, we'll consider how the historical Greeks used the giants to elevate Greek civilization over the uncultured others. Within the city of Berlin, Germany, on the grounds of Museum Island, home to the Berlin Collection of Classical Antiquities, there stand two reconstructions of a great monument known as the Altar of Pergamon. Constructed as the altar to a larger temple structure in the 2nd century BC, or between 200 and 100 BCE, it once stood over 100 feet tall and stretched close to 120 feet wide. It sprawled across the hills of the city of Pergamon in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was recorded by an ancient writer in Latin, Lucius Ampelius, as one of the great marvels of the ancient world. One of the main reasons for this reputation was the beautiful and strikingly large sculptural reliefs that adorned the massive structure, which wrapped around the base in a continuous frieze. A frieze is basically a decorative band of sculpted images that are raised from a flat panel and frequently grace ancient temples or other architectural buildings. In the case of Pergamon's altar, the friezes depict a great battle between the gods and a strange group of beings that look like men, except that, in the place of legs, they have writhing coils of serpentine tails. Despite the damage to the monument, one can clearly make out the fact that this is not a pleasant affair for these creatures. The gods appear ruthless in their force, crushing them underfoot, grasping them by the hair while they are readying a fatal blow and thrusting red-hot torches into their faces. Few could doubt that Ampelius's labeling of the altar as a marvel is justified when they see the emotion captured by the faces of the most unfortunate of these monsters, a clear look of doubting one's life choices as their skull is caught in the grip of a massive dog's jaws or Athena's muscular hand. Despite being overmatched, they are muscular and equal to the gods in their massive size. These are the giants of Greek myth. In this episode, we're going to focus on these giants, examining what the word meant to the ancient Greeks, other creatures that might have inspired their characteristics, and their cultural significance to both myth and history. We will soon turn to an ancient account of these giants and their battle with the gods in the mythographer Apollodorus, who is by now familiar to our listeners as the most important ancient writer on myth. 
But first, we need to back up a bit in the story and go back to the earliest time in Greek myth, which we'll call for convenience primeval time, before the Olympian gods had secured their role as chief gods. In this earliest of periods, the world was strained and dangerous, rough in form after having only just been formed from chaos, or the void, the first god from which all other things came. The earliest of the gods were primordial deities like Gaia, Uranus, and Tartarus, who represented concepts within the natural world such as earth, sky, and underworld, respectively. Many creatures that we would consider monsters in mythology were quite common in this primeval period, as the children of these primordial deities reflected the untamed aspects of nature that they had come from through their savagery and their strange appearances. Take, for example, two sets of Gaia's offspring. First, the Hecatonchires, mighty men with 50 heads and, as their name in Greek suggests, 100 arms and the second being the famous one-eyed Cyclopes, who ultimately would make Zeus's thunderbolts. Now, Uranus, the personification of the sky, was horrified that these children he had with Gaia were so ghastly, and thus he decided to lock them up violently in the pits of Tartarus, which would become known as a realm of punishment and suffering. For this cruelty, the Titans, led by Cronus, would in turn overthrow Uranus, now, the titans that ruled before the Olympian gods were not physically monstrous like their brethren, but the acts of cruelty committed by them, such as Cronus swallowing his own children immediately after birth, that is, the Olympian gods, to prevent them from taking power, is an example of their primeval savagery, their violence. And so it was that the Olympians in time followed suit and overthrew their father Cronus and the rest of the titans in order to establish themselves as the gods and rulers of the world. To punish the Titans for their tyranny, Zeus locked them up within the realm of Tartarus. It is here that we'll call upon Apollodorus, the most important ancient mythographer, who captures Gaia's anger about Zeus's treatment of her children. But Gaia, Earth, enraged on account of the Titans' imprisonment, brought forth the giants who she had with Oranos, Father Sky. These ones were unmatched in bodily size and unconquerable in their might. They were frightful to look at, with thick hair hanging from their heads and chins, and they had serpent coils for legs. Some say that they were born in the land of Phlegrae, but according to others in Pellini, they hurled boulders and flaming trees in heaven. Surpassing all the rest were Porphyrion and Alcyoneus the latter of whom was even immortal, so long as he fought upon the land of his birth. Now, we imagine that you have a very specific idea in mind what giant means, a large, perhaps lumbering creature that is somehow beyond the limits of humankind. Many different cultural entities fit this label, ranging from beings in literature such as Goliath from the Bible and the unfriendly giant from Jack and the Beanstalk, as well as folk heroes like Paul Bunyan and even more modern examples such as the trolls seen in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you might even be thinking of the half-giant Rubius Hagrid in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter or the giants of the North in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. 
The reason so many examples fit under this one term is that the word has come to mean simply a being that is enormous, along with a handful of other traits such as savagery, stupidity, a fondness for human flesh, and the classic fee-fi-fo-fum echoing as they approach. You might notice that the giants from Apollodorus' account seem only to be slightly more similar to that picture than what can be directly seen on the reliefs of the altar of Pergamon. Apollodorus' giants are huge, imposing brutes with bushy beards and shaggy hair that would put any grizzled mountain man to shame. While these large creatures in Apollodorus and on the altar of Pergamon fit our idea of giant, that is not what the word giant originally meant. The word giant comes from gigas in ancient Greek, with the plural form being gigantes, which literally means born from Gaia or earthborn. So the most important aspect of these creatures is not their size necessarily, but that they came from the primeval goddess Gaia. As we've come to see, creatures that are born of Gaia often have some kind of monstrous traits, a hundred arms, only one eye, and now serpentine legs. As it happens, because our ancient sources generally describe the earthborn giants of Greek myth as huge and monstrous, that's what stuck and became more generalized. When we say giants now, we mean huge, lumbering, and usually uncivilized. The earthborn giants of myth that Apollodorus discusses is not the earliest version. For that, we need to look at Hesiod's Theogony, who describes the giants, the earthborn, offhandedly as the offspring of Gaia and Uranus, having been born from the blood that spilled upon Gaia when Cronus castrated his father to take power. Hesiod describes these earthborn giants as great and clad in shining armor. Great in this line represents the Greek word megalus, which could mean of great size, but could also refer to their great strength and might. Coincidentally, both greatness in size and might are features that Apollodorus himself mentioned. The theme of giants as warriors is also present within the earliest visual representations from the 6th century BCE on vases and temple decorations like the frieze of the Scythian treasury at the Greek city of Delphi. In these pieces, they are depicted as hoplite soldiers that are similar in proportions to the gods they are fighting, and just as humanized in their appearance without any serpentine or snake-like features. In Homer's Odyssey, we have a couple mentions of the giants who are described as a race of insolent creatures whose wicked ways brought them to doom, and later as a savage race of beings akin to the Cyclopes. Another group that Odysseus himself encounters on his travels were the Lystragonians, a lawless race of massive beings whose savage ways Odysseus and his men did not realize until three of his men sent as an embassy entered the palace. And then Homer recounts the encounter. They entered the palace and found his wife there. But she stood mountain high, and they were aghast at the sight of her. She sent out forthwith to fetch King Antiphides, her husband, from the assembly place. And he devised for them woeful death. He clutched one of my men at once and made a meal of him. But the other two rushed away and ran till they reached the ships. The king then raised a cry through the town, and the other great Lystragonians heard him. They came thronging from all sides in multitudes, looking not like men, but like the lawless giants. And from the cliffs they began to hurl down great rocks that were each of them one man's burden. 
a hideous din rose amid my fleet as men were killed and vessels shattered. The Lystragonians speared men like fish and then carried home their monstrous meal. You will not be surprised that another work confirms that these brutal and savage Lystragonians were ultimately descended from Gaia too. So we can see a connection between the children of Gaia and massive savage creatures. But what about the snaky bits that the giants are depicted with? That connection depends on Gaia as well. In Greek myth, snakes are symbolically linked to the earth, and as a result, many of Gaia's children bear some kind of serpent motif. Examples of this include the python, which we'll discuss in a later episode, and the epically monstrous Typhaeus, also known as Typhon, that we featured in an earlier episode. Our earliest and best description of Typhaeus comes from Hesiod's Theogony, which actually does not tell of the giants in his account of the creation of the world and the triumphant emergence of the Olympian gods. In fact, Typhaeus may just be a sort of stand-in for the giants, or conversely, the conception of the giants might have been influenced by the portrayal of Typhaeus in poetry and art. At any rate, Hesiod tells us that Typhaeus was conceived by Gaia, who made it with Tartarus, the underworld, to produce a creature that would kill Zeus and the other Olympians, which, you may remember, is exactly the same reason that Gaia produced the giants in Apollodorus' version. As for Typhaeus' appearance, he is made to be a blend of the monstrousness we've come to expect from primeval monsters created from Gaia. The result is a ghastly freak show when even compared to the giants. But there is a clear familiarity to be found between the two if you downplay Typhaeus' exaggerated features. If you listen closely to the next passage from Hesiod, you might even begin to see the connection. From his shoulders grew a hundred heads of a serpent, an awful dragon with dark, flickering tongues, and from under the brows of his eyes, in his marvelous heads, flashed fire, and fire burned from his heads as he glared. And there were voices in all of his dreadful heads, which uttered every kind of sound that was unspeakable. Sometimes the gods could understand, but at others it sounded like a spirited bull bellowing and snorting, or the unleashed roar of a lion, or like puppies yapping, an uncanny sound, or a whistle hissing through long ridges and hills. And that day, Typhoeus would have ruled over immortals and men, had Father Zeus not been quick to notice. As you'll remember from our previous episode, Typhaeus was the final great threat to Zeus's rule, and it was also featured on a very famous Greek vase depicting Zeus's epic battle against him. On this vase, which you can see on our website, Typhaeus is depicted as a very hairy, winged humanoid from the head to the waist, where, instead of legs, serpent coils extend out. As is typical, artists and poets can describe the same monster differently, and over time elements from one monster can cross over to another. Take Apollodorus' description of Typhaeus, which depicts him somewhat similar to Hesiod, but emphasizes the unkempt, windswept hair and legs made of vipers from the thighs on down, just like the giants. It's perhaps no accident that Zeus's battle against the giants and Typhaeus are narrated side by side in Apollodorus' account. They're that similar. 
In fact, as time went on, the myths of several giant creatures, that is, giant with a lowercase g, Typhaeus, the giants, the enormous sons of Aloys, even the titans became conflated, merged together conceptually. One example will show what we mean. Mount Etna on the island of Sicily was, and still is, a particularly active volcano, and the area was, and still is, seismically active. Different authors sought to explain this by attributing its seismic activity to, at one point, a giant, at another point, Typhaeus. Apollodorus, in fact, offers both explanations. In the battle against the giants, he tells us that Athena threw the island of Sicily on top of a giant named Enceladus. Not a page later, he notes that when Typhaeus was fleeing from Zeus, the Olympian god hurled Mount Etna on top of his monstrous foe. Regardless of the version, both beings served the same purpose by causing earthquakes, struggling under the mountain and belching fire to bring about volcanic eruptions. But the bigger point here is that later authors began to treat all gigantic, lowercase g, creatures somewhat interchangeably, but invariably they belong to the primeval period of the world. Similar to the Amazons we covered in episode 12, the giants also serve as foils in comparison to Greek culture. They are an other in that they are monstrous reminders of a time well before the world came to be Greek, represented by the fact that they came before the Olympian gods. The world the Olympians rule over is distinctly Greek, an orderly, civilized, and cultured world due to the just rule of Zeus and the Olympians. As we established earlier, the primeval world that came before them was presented in harsh contrast to this, being unsafe, uncivilized, and full of monstrous creatures connected to the primordial deities. The giants are merely one example of these monsters, yet they share a purpose in that they are representations of the strange world that existed within the past, and which still existed at the edges of Greek society, full of curiosities and terrors alike. The placement of the giants in Pellini and Phlegrae is meaningful in this way, as they are not within the bounds of Greece, technically. Rather, they are located in Thrace, which was considered a non-Greek area by the ancient Greeks and a place of wildness and violence. And it is with this that we loop back to where we started, the altar of Pergamon and the elaborate depiction of the Gigantomachy, the battle between the Olympian gods and the giants. What the altar shows us is, in part, the triumph of Greek civilization over primitive chaos, of the human over the animalistic. As for the depiction on the altar itself, let us turn once again to Apollodorus, who tells us that the gods had received an oracle that none of the giants could perish at the hands of the gods unless they had the help of a mortal. This mortal hero would be Heracles, who Athena summons to aid the gods in battle. Heracles first shot Alcyoneus with an arrow. But wherever the giant fell on the ground, he revived. However, at Athena's advice, Heracles dragged him outside the land of Pelini, and only then the giant died. In the battle, the king of the giants, Porphyrion, attacked Heracles and Hera. Nevertheless, Zeus caused Porphyrion to go mad with lust for Hera. And when he tore her robes and would have forced himself upon her, she called for help and Zeus smote him with a thunderbolt. Heracles then shot him dead with an arrow. As for the other giants, one named Ephialtes was shot by Apollo with an arrow in his left eye, and by Heracles in his right. 
Another named Eurydice was killed by Dionysus with a thyrsus. Another Clydeus by Hecate with torches. And one Mimas by Hephaestus with missiles of red-hot metal. Yet another, Enceladus, fled. But while he was fleeing, Athena threw the island of Sicily upon him. And she flayed another named Pallas and used his skin to shield her own body in the fight. More fled as well, like Polybodes, who was chased through the sea by Poseidon to the land of Kos, where Poseidon broke off a piece of the island, which was called Nicerum, and threw it on top of him. Hermes, wearing the helmet of Hades, slew the great Hippolytus in the fight, while Artemis slew Gratian. And the fates, fighting with bronze clubs, killed Agrius and Thoas. The other giants Zeus smote and destroyed with thunderbolts. And all of them were finished by Heracles with arrows as they were dying. The triumph of the Olympian gods and Heracles over the giants is symbolic of Greek civilization and the order that comes with it, overcoming the dangers of a natural and primeval world, as Gaia's children are remnants of that time and thus stand in the way of such order being established. It is similar to the defeat of Python at Delphi by Apollo that will be mentioned in the next episode. Each event represents a symbolic victory of the Olympians over Gaia and her wild children, the Gigantomachy establishing the Olympians' rule, and since Delphi was what the Greeks considered to be the center of the world, Apollo establishing the Delphic Oracle there represents him founding an incredibly important religious and cultural center for the ancient Greeks. The altar of Pergamon stands out as a striking illustration of this concept, as it also represents how the mythic traditions of the ancient Greeks took on political importance in later history. The altar commemorates actual historical events, and the giants on the altar are meant to represent actual foreign enemies to the Greeks. The word barbaros means not speaking Greek, and it is where we derive the word barbarian from. In the art of the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, the use of the gigantomachy imagery was made more prevalent to create a xenophobic juxtaposition of foreigners to the Greeks. Phidias, the famed sculptor and architect of the Parthenon, included imagery of the gigantomachy throughout the temple and the cult statue to represent the victory of the Greeks, led by the Athenians, over the Persians in the Greco-Persian Wars of 490 BCE. These connections were formed due to the Persian Wars having been fought by all of Greece, which heightened the xenophobia felt by the Greeks towards foreigners. This may have led to the formation of patriotic rhetoric by way of looking back upon cultural touchstones like the barbaric giants in order to find a fitting analogy to their current enemies. The altar of Pergamon was constructed after another of these wars with foreign neighbors, this time between Atalos, the king of Pergamon, and the Galatian tribes of Asia Minor. The travel mythographer Pausanias gives us the supposed story on the background details of Attalus's miraculous victory against the barbarians, wherein the Delphic oracle claimed in a prophecy that Attalos, called the son of the bull reared by Zeus, would drive back the Galatians from Asia Minor. To commemorate his victory over them, Atalos and his son Eumenes II correlated the mythological view of the giants with that of the Galatians, having already made connections to Zeus himself and the Olympians to complete the symbolic image they wished to depict. This symbolism would speak to the fame Attalus would gain in defeating the Galatians and several other Gallic tribes in Asia Minor to consolidate Greek power 
And if Pausanias' story is to be believed, he may have been seen as a Zeus-like figure in his deeds to bring order by driving back the enemies of Greece. So much was he supposedly respected by the Greek world for his actions that he was given the title Soter, meaning savior in ancient Greek, and given his kingship over Pergamon. Historian Richard Whitaker summarizes the situation quite nicely in his paper, Art and Ideology, The Case of the Pergamon Gigantomachy, and we provide a short snippet here for you. Attalus, by inserting his own victory into this series of famous triumphs over the mythological and historical order, quite clearly sought to represent Pergamon as a second Athens, a bastion of civilization against the barbarian onslaught. The monument also clearly shows us the historical and political meaning of the Attalids and Greeks attached to the subject of the Gigantomachy. Before we finish this segment, let us finish up by reminding ourselves of something we've said before on the Greek myth files. Myth cannot be reduced to history. Yet, we can see how myth can be brought to bear in contemporary issues of identity, nationality, and otherness. The altar of Pergamon is an artistic reinterpretation of the myth of the Gigantomachy, used by ancient Greeks like the Attalids to prop up their own nationalistic message, based on the politics of their time, by making an other of foreign peoples. It is essential to keep in mind the original context when it comes to discussing both myth and history in our modern context, especially when they come together to frame a message we might now consider problematic, like in the case of the altar. Let us briefly return to the Argonaut adventure, our featured story from last season. Being similar to the giants make an appearance in Apollonius of Rhodes' epic poem. While on their way to Colchis, the Argonauts find themselves in Mysia, south of the Sea of Marmara between the Hellespont and the Bosporus, where they encounter people known as the Geganeas, whose name means earthborn. They are said to live upon Bear Mountain, and Apollonius describes them as follows in terms of their appearance. Bear Mountain is inhabited by a fierce and lawless tribe of earth-born men who present an astounding spectacle to their neighbors. Each of these earth-born monsters is equipped with six great arms, two springing from his shoulders and four below from his prodigious flanks. The term earth-born men is not gigantes, but a related word geganeas, but they certainly fit the bill for what we've already seen from other creatures born of Gaia. We might expect the Argonauts to flee, as Odysseus and his crew did from such horrors, and they did, until the earthborn men trapped them by blocking off any exit. It was only through the intervention of one hero that they managed to escape with their lives, Heracles, who we've just heard was instrumental in helping the gods defeat the giants. Heracles' heroic defense and the slaying of the earthborn ones is the perfect example to demonstrate the purpose of heroes, similar to the Olympian gods, in opposition to the giants and other creatures like them. One of the things heroes do is rid the world of monsters and, as we will see later, Heracles was the monster killer par excellence. As we've now established, the giants, along with other monsters stemming from the earth, are representative of a fear of the unknown and the lack of civilization due to their perceived savagery, being made clear through the destruction they bring. The defeat of monsters by Heracles and other heroes, therefore, represents the order and safety being brought to unknown places where the Greeks had no control. 
In fact, many famous monsters slain by famous Greek heroes share a common connection with the giants, being that their ancestry can be traced back to Gaia, Typhaeus, Echidna, the serpent woman who once mated with Typhaeus. These monsters are all defeated by heroes to make the regions they dwelled in safe and habitable, bringing civilization and order to lawless lands. Well, that's it for another installment of the Greek Myth Files, and we thank you for listening to our work. Of course, great thanks go to our students and recent graduate, Jake Compagna, who wrote this episode. Thanks, Jake. Our voice actors are A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer, and our sound engineer is Samantha Coutier. All of them are crucial to making this show a successful one. Finally, as always, our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the fabulous musician and composer Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go out and buy his music and listen to it. These have been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. 